Well, I saw this story yesterday in the Times Colonist. It's also in the Vancouver Sun, and it has to do with fines that were levied against six friends who went paddleboarding and ended up camping on the West Coast Trail. But the problem was they didn't have a permit to camp there. And also, at the time when this was happening, the trail had actually been closed because of COVID restrictions that were in place last summer. This is the update, though, that on Friday, the six friends, the six men, appeared via phone and video link in the Western Communities Provincial Court and entered guilty pleas to illegally entering and camping in the park without a permit. And the punishment, well, various fines as well, their paddle boards were confiscated at the time, although it now appears they will be getting those paddle boards back. So we wanted to talk a little bit more about this. And joining us is Chris Ludwig, president of the BC Mountaineering Club. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. Hello, Jill. What are what is your response after seeing the story and seeing some of the details of this story of the six friends, the six men who were fined for camping on that trail? Well, initially, I saw some of the reaction in social media, including one of the Facebook groups I run, which is quite large. Backcountry BC has about nine thousand members, um, and it was mixed. So there were some that were felt like uh, government was being too strict, and the other there was others. Well. We all know that the West Coast Trail, needs a, you need a permit. I mean, my personal reaction is, as the president of a, a an outdoor organization, I believe you're, if you're a social media influencer or part of a, you know, some sort of outdoor publication or an organization, you do, I think, have a bit of an obligation to uh, set an example and set a positive example by following the rules. And um, I think the, the individuals involved have recognized they've made a mistake and, and, uh, and we're not from what I gather, defensive about it, and uh, we're apologetic, which is which is good. I mean, oopsies happen, um, and uh, they seem to uh, accept their punishment and fate. And uh, and, and uh, yeah, no, and especially given that the West Coast Trail, you know, goes through first three First Nations communities, and they're small rural communities. They're worried about COVID, obviously, as they have limited resources and the ability to handle those, you know, a, a COVID problem. Uh, I can see why those communities would be concerned about uh, people uh, going through that area at this time, hence the closure. So, And also the revenue through the permit systems provides important uh, uh, revenue for those communities to maintain those areas and, those, and the associated businesses. So, you know, the, those permits and the fees that go with it really are important. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if I believe there's about 75 people are allowed to, when when the trails open, access three different trailheads per day, and that's that's already a fair bit. Uh, and I think, given that it's a world class or world famous trail, if we had a free for all, it just wouldn't survive. Right, and interesting points. And I and I know the the lawyer for these men was quoted again in this story, saying that this wasn't a reckless. Act. It wasn't as though they were going there and trying to do any damage, but they also made the argument that they didn't appreciate that where they were was actually part of the national park, that they thought that they were at the water line or they were they were on the water's edge and they didn't think they'd actually breached or gone into the, the national park. Do you think that that kind of explanation, does that make sense? Well, parts of the trail actually do go along the beach, so uh, it, uh, <laughs> it, it, it does surprise me a little. Um, but, you know, again, mistakes can happen. Um, but so, no, that is the, the beach is clearly part of the park, too. 
and um, you know you do need an overnight permit. Uh, and uh, you know the West Coast Trail actually does cost a fair bit of money. It's not an inexpensive hike anymore. Um, so so no, they shouldn't have been there for sure. Uh, but I think they recognize that. I think the fines were actually quite modest considering what could have happened. You know, in a in a national park. I think there are two individuals that had more. I think if you work it out, it's about five hundred dollars a person for the, you know, sort of for the friends, and then there's two of them that got larger fines because, I believe that there were some other, uh, maybe other incidents that happened in other parks as well. Um, so, um, that that seems to make sense, and you know, I'm glad that this judge wasn't overly heavy-handed. Right. Okay. One of the the men as well, or one of the men that was actually given the larger fine um, because, and the judge did make a comment that this is somebody who would know the area is connected to Mountain Life magazine. And then it came into question, were they just some guys out on paddle boards who didn't know any better or should they have known where they were? And did they maybe do this thinking, well, it's closed, there's not going to be anybody there and it won't be a big deal? I mean, that would be speculation on my part. Um, I believe the judge uh, chose to levy fines, given that he couldn't prove that they were a commercial, uh, in other words, venture. In other words, uh, say, uh, a film operation or something of that nature. So I I think he went with the lesser option. Um, But, yeah, I mean, as to whether they should know better, I mean, obviously you want to, know your jurisdiction and, and know the rules and play within them whenever you go to an area. Um, so, uh, I mean, only they know, uh, I guess, how much they knew and didn't know in terms of the rules. Um, but uh, certainly I, I'm hoping to see, you know, less of these kinds of incidents in the future. And I, I don't think they'll make this mistake again. And do you think it will serve as a warning to others as well, uh, given that you do, like you said, you do have to know if you're going out into a more rugged part of the province or if you're going paddleboarding and you plan on going camping, you do need to do the research and know where you're going, know whether or not that a per- whether or not a permit is required? I think it will, but I, I mean, I, I do like it when government doesn't serve to be overly punitive when making an example of someone. In other words, they won't overly harsh in this situation. So I think the message will get out there that, yes, you do need a permit. And if the park is closed, and in the case of the National Park, you shouldn't be there given uh, the stress it puts on these remote communities. So I think that's I, I think a reasonable balance has been achieved here. And do you think it was the right call that their paddle boards were confiscated when they were caught? And it sounds like now Parks Canada is going to give those paddle boards back. Well, I'm glad to see them going back. I imagine they seize them as sort of as leverage in a way, almost it's like a down payment on the on the fine. So but as long as they're getting their paddle boards back in the long run, that's what matters, I think. Uh, you mentioned as well, there are a lot of people commenting on this on the, the Backcountry BC Facebook page, a difference of opinion as to whether or not this punishment fits the crime. But uh, does it at least also, uh, I guess, on a, on a happier note, show that we're getting through this and we're getting back to the point where things are opening up again and people are able to get back to these beautiful parts of the province and enjoy them and respectfully enjoy them? Well, there's a desperate need, uh, as we've seen that certainly in the provincial parks, the explosion, you know, of, of users. Uh, I think people are, you know, two years into the pandemic are, are really feeling desperate to get out there and, and enjoy the wilderness. And I, I certainly sympathize with that. Um, and, um, 
you know, it, part of the part of the challenge we have on uh, certainly on the coast and on Vancouver Island is is a lack of money for, you know, our rec sites, so rec sites and trails and provincial parks and a lack lack, lack of boots on the ground. And uh, you know, the more the more help we can get in terms of of uh, maintaining and expanding our trail networks, the better. So you know, the public can get involved. That's great if they want to get involved in an organization or or trail building or donate or you know, get involved uh, with your local club. That would be, be very helpful. All right. Chris Ludwig, we'll leave it there for today. But as always, so great to have you on the show. Thank you for this. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. You too. Well, as we've been talking about on this show and on the news, we are expecting to hear from the Prime Minister in about 25 minutes and with an update on whether or not he is invoking the Emergencies Act. It looks like that is going to be the move made by the Prime Minister. But again, we will take you there live just as soon as that news conference gets underway. Right now, though, let's bring in Jim Sesford, the retired Delta Police Chief, joining us on the line to talk more about what's happening with these protests and the idea of bringing in the Emergencies Act. Jim Sesford, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. What are your thoughts uh, from your role in policing and looking at this uh, through a bit of a, a policing lens? Here we are. It looks as though the Emergencies Act is going to be brought in. It would be the first time this act has been brought in. What are your thoughts about that? I don't support that at all, Joe. I think it's an extreme measure that's not necessary at this point. There's all kinds of other tools available to the police uh, to deal with these situations. They can get court injunctions. The Criminal Code of Canada clearly outlines that what these people are doing is, is, uh, is a criminal offense. And there's also provincial acts that enable the police to deal with this. I think that this is not the time to invoke that extreme measure. Uh, it's, it's, it's just not the time. It needs to be uh, utilized for something far more serious than this. One of the requirements for that, or the the prime minister would have to prove that this is a threat to national security, that this is kind of a last resort. So it sounds like what you're saying, too, from what we're seeing still happening in Ontario specifically, it doesn't make that meet that threshold. I don't see that it does, no. Uh, you know, Joe, like a mischief in the Criminal Code of Canada, and this really lays it out. The section says that anyone who's interfering with the lawful use and enjoyment or operation of property is liable to a, a serious offense, and in some cases to life imprisonment. The, the, um, the tools are there. The laws are there. We just need to utilize them. I think one of the reasons why the police are reluctant to move ahead is that oftentimes in the past, we've not had the support of the courts when we actually start to charge people with these offenses. And I think uh, that would be one of the issues that the police would be concerned about. But the legislation is there. If, there, if the police are telling you, you can't block a road. If you're blocking a road and I ask you to move and you don't move, you're obstructing me in the awful, in the lawful execution of my duty. So I arrest you. And, and you're charged. Uh, so, so the legislation is there. So, uh, but this is an extreme measure, and it's not necessary.
Some might argue, though, that yes, the legislation is there and those powers are there. And in Ontario, we did see the Premier of Ontario issue a state of emergency in because of what was happening. But it didn't stop the protests or the, the occupation. I, I mean, it's good news that the Ambassador Bridge was operating operational again. But we're still seeing people that are in residential streets, that are in, in different parts of the capital. And many in that city are saying they feel like they're being held hostage. So even with the declaring of the state of emergency, if people still aren't being arrested and being moved out, what 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 are they doing wrong then? Well, that's the issue, Jill. And I think what what's, what's, uh, concerns me is that we're not seeing a consistent approach to enforcing the law across Canada. Uh, you're seeing in Alberta, the RCMP are moving in and they're arresting people and, and they're moving them off. And, and just recently, you know, they arrested a lot of people. They found weapons and and all kinds of other um, uh, contraband that that's a, a threat to public safety. The police need to move in, and the police need to take control. Uh, there's riot troops. There's all kinds of emergency response teams right across this country, and I think we need to have a consistent approach to how we're going to do with this, not just in Ottawa, not just in Manitoba or Alberta, but across this country. And police chiefs need to be talking uh, similar to what we did after 911, we major police chiefs from across this country talked about how we we're going to use a utilized or a unified approach to dealing with the situation. I don't see that happening right now. And if the police in Alberta are arresting, the police in Ontario need to be arresting, and they need to deal with this thing with this straight up and move in. And they need to take these people before the courts, and the courts need to to deal with them very harshly. When we're dealing with so many people, and especially in Ottawa, what we've seen there, uh, to a, a smaller extent, what we saw at the Pack Highway crossing in BC this weekend, and what we're continuing to see there. But when we look at the crowds in Ottawa, is it possible to move in and to make arrests and to do that in a way that there aren't going to be casualties? Well, there may, and that's one of the big issues, and I, I understand that. You, you know, we we don't want to hurt people. And um, and that, that that wouldn't be the objective. The objective, of course, would be to clear them out. But if, in fact, there's resistance, then you're going to have to, the police are going to have to use as much force as is necessary to enforce the law. And uh, so, so, yeah, you want to do it in a peaceful fashion. But, um, but if that can't be done, then you're going to have to use more extreme actions. There were also some videos that surfaced this past weekend, and I know you don't get the whole picture from a two-minute video or, or something shorter, but it was video that appeared to show a member of the OPP kind of yucking it up with a couple of the protesters in their truck, and they were talking about their common interests and how great it was. He appeared to have pulled them over because they were flashing their lights on the truck, and he said, oh, those lights were really distracting. Make sure you wait till you get to your protest destination to put the lights on. It was very jovial there was a lot of laughing and and telling stories and that it's it, it certainly got a lot of negative feedback and saying well if these if officers are going to be like friends to these people then what hope do we have that any of them are going to be arrested is that a tactic or what is your response to, to seeing this kind of jovial behavior well I, I think that well, first off the police have to be professional on those front lines I've been in the front line of several of these demonstrations with 20, 25,000 people. You want to be professional, but, and, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's okay to have a relationship, 
but uh, we don't need to be silly about it. Uh, we need to let these people know that we're there to do a job, and if, in fact, that uh, job requires us to take an action, that's going to happen. And we're not there to be their friends. We're there to make sure that they're safe and the public is safe. And uh, people need to get that message. I don't think it sends a very good message if you've got police officers on the front line who are joking around and not taking the situation serious. Because this is a very serious situation. I mean, exactly. I mean, there are people in part, parts of these protests, certainly not everybody, but there are protest leaders and there are people involved in this who are, are, are very openly saying their goal is to take down the government. They want to replace the government. And, and I think that's what's getting a lot of the reaction, too, is, well, if you're not arresting people who are claiming that that is their end goal, then, then why aren't you? Well, that's exactly right. The police need to act now. And, and again, I, I say this again, some police jurisdictions are actually taking action and they're moving in and they're dealing with the situation. We've let this situation, in my view, we've let this situation in Ottawa go far too long. I don't buy the fact that we don't have sufficient resources. We have sufficient resources across this country. And the, and the police um, working together in a unified approach can deal with this to make sure that it doesn't happen in other communities. And uh, so we need to move forward with it. We need to take action and get it dealt with. The Emergency Measures Act is, is not any different than the Criminal Code of Canada or a court injunction. As you said, the the Premier of Alberta had talked about, uh, you know, uh, uh, emergency measures in, in Ontario. Nothing has changed. Uh, the laws are there, so deal with them. So if the Prime Minister does bring in the Emergencies Act, and again, it would be the first time that act will have been ever used, is it kind of saying that we have failed up until this point? Well, that would be my concern. Uh, that would be my concern. I, I, this is an extreme measure, in my view. It's an overreaction. It's a far too extreme action at this point. And, and I, I don't think it sets a very good precedent for our future. The laws are there, deal with them now. The Emergency Aid Measures Act is not going to do any. What, what more is it going to give us than, we've already, than the tools we already have at our disposal? And, um, and we don't need that act to, to deal with this situation. And uh, I, I, think, I think it's a huge mistake, frankly. Uh, the Prime Minister has also said that there are no plans at this point to bring in the military. Uh, it's not as though the military could take over or do police work. That's not their role. But do you think there is any value in having the military? Because we're not just dealing with people that are camped out in front of a building. We're talking about large trucks and vehicles that are part of this. Could the military be involved in any way, even logistically, as far as, I mean, it's going to take a long time, no matter what happens happens to get those trucks and to get them out of there. Yeah, that's a really good point, uh, Joe. I, I think from a, from a resource perspective, as far as equipment, to, to have to tow some of these big trucks out of there and to, to do some, you know, to um, implement some of those actions, I think perhaps the armed forces could be involved with some of their equipment. But from a, a human resource uh, approach, absolutely not. It's not the responsibility of Canadian armed forces the police have sufficient resources across this country, and they need to pull together and deal with this. The armed forces, in my view, are not here to deal with, pub- with uh, uh, public insurrection. They're here to, you know, to deal with the protection of the country, from, certainly from outside threats. And uh, to have them involved with this, I think, is totally wrong.
All right. And one other question, and I know it's it's kind of hindsight and looking back, but do you think, did this protest, the blockade, the occupation, did it, was it allowed to get far too big in that police should have acted sooner? In my view, it did. I think it should have been dealt with much sooner. And in, and uh, uh, we should have got out in front of it. You know, we talked about not having sufficient resources. I understand that they're, they're concerned about not getting the support of the courts and of the perhaps the public. But but the laws are there. They should have dealt with that right off the bat before it got out of hand. Now we're at a point where, in fact, we could be looking at some, you know, some difficulty in actually uh, enforcing the laws. Whether you have an emergency uh, Emergencies Act or the Criminal Code of Canada, we're still going to have to take some some action. And and unfortunately, it could result in, uh, you know, some people getting hurt. And that's not what we want to see. All right, Jim Sessford, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Joe. We'll talk again. All the best. Thanks for being with us. We will bring you more of the questions and answers from the news conference with the Prime Minister a bit later on this hour. Right now, though, we wanted to shift back to something we mentioned earlier. And as you've been hearing on the news, an announcement earlier today, ICBC going to move to the availability of online car insurance renewals. It's not going to change the amount of your insurance. Also doing away with decals in the future and joining us to talk more about this is Richard Zussman, Global News journalist who is based in Victoria. Richard, thanks so much. Before I spent a lot of time on COVID, Jill, I spent a lot of time on ICBC stories. So this feels like going in the time machine and going back like two and a half years here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, there there you have it. And I saw someone making a joke saying, oh, congratulations, ICBC. You've now joined the rest of us in 2013, I guess, suggesting they've, they've yeah. made some changes, but still not really that modernized. But what does this mean for people who drive and who get insurance through ICBC? Yeah, so there's the two pieces you mentioned. That's the nuts and bolts here, is that you no longer will be required to update your decal every year. So when you go into your broker and get the sticker and stick it on your license plate and it doesn't stick quite right because there's a bunch of other stickers there and there's dirt and mud, you don't have to do that anymore. Uh, And then the other piece in all of this, uh, which is going to be significant for a lot of people, is you no longer have to go into the broker to renew your insurance. You can now do that online. And That is the sort of nuts and bolts of what's happening here, Jill. But we've done so many stories over the last five years around the costs associated with the broker system. And what I can't say surprised me, but what stands out to me for sure is that this change today has nothing to do with saving money. The thought was you go online, you save money because they won't have to have as many people at the brokerage to help you. Well, this is not going to save any money. It's going to save time and the brokers are going to remain in place to review all of the online applications. So this is all about convenience. It has nothing to do with cost savings. And as the rest of the world moves to online to save costs, British Columbia will continue to rely on this broker system, which in 2018-19 was about half a billion dollars. So $490 million was paid to brokers from ICBC to administer Uh, in essence, renewals, but also uh, new ICBC uh, accounts. So it's not, uh, and I know you asked this question of Mike Farnworth, the minister who was making this announcement. So not only is it not saving policyholders any money, it's also not saving the government any money. 
No, and the government continues to fall back on the fact that it's overhauled ICBC to bring in no fault and that's saving money. And I think, you know, the government needs to be commended for that. You know, the work got done and the savings are there and ICBC is now making money. But through the reporting that we've done, there is room for more savings at ICBC. The broker system is important here. They allow people to understand their plans, but we're also in 2022. And if you're going to do a basic renewal, in essence, roll your plan over, why do you need to pay uh, the more than $100 uh, it costs to do that? So the $100 around a little bit more of the money that you spend on your premium goes from ICBC back to the broker just to administer that. And it is hard to wrap your head around uh, where that money is coming from. And Nicholas Jimenez, the CEO of ICBC, stepped in today to answer one of the questions I asked. And he basically said, oh, well, the broker isn't just there for your point of purchase or your point of renewal. They are there year round to support people. But I don't know if the listeners we have right now, how many actually deal with their broker outside of either buying new insurance or making an address change or making you know that renewal that you can do online. I think ICBC is being a bit disingenuous in terms of how people use brokers. This isn't an attack on what brokers do. It's an important part of the current system. The question is, can savings be found doing things more efficiently? And yes, online is convenient, but there could have been a lot more savings here. And those savings would have been passed on to drivers, Jill, and insurance could have been even more affordable for BC drivers. It does seem like the kind of thing where there should be the option, because I'm sure there are a lot of people who have had that exchange. And again, not not saying anything, like you said, not, not saying anything bad about brokers, but how many people have had that conversation when you are renewing your insurance, you are not changing anything, it's for the same vehicle, and the broker says, do you want to change this liability, your liability? No. Do you want to change? And you stop them and say, I want the exact policy. I have right now. Do you want to change that? No, I want the exact policy. I've I've made an informed decision. Can you just give me the same policy that you couldn't just do that online? Seems a bit strange. And I think that's what we see in other jurisdictions. And yes, insurance is done differently in other places with private models. But I think the expectation would be if it's as simple as just carry everything over, then you do that online. And for those that are more sophisticated, go to a broker, either online or in person. And there could be a balance there where hypothetically you could be saving 25% or 50% of the broker costs. The challenge here is that these are small businesses operated by small business owners who have, you know, it's been lucrative for a long time for these brokers and making those changes are challenging and it would take a big commitment from government because in essence you are telling this industry, well, we are going to be cutting the amount of money you receive from government. There should be room here to have that conversation and government in moving uh, to online like this has basically pushed this conversation aside and said, well, we've made the decision on brokers. They're not even changing, Jill, the amount of money a broker receives for the transaction. Like one option would be you they get less for an online transaction than an in-person transaction. They're just keeping the, the rate exactly the same no matter how you uh, renew your insurance. Does it also seem, I was trying to try and figure out what the justification might be for this in that, are they afraid that someone's going to come back who gets in a crash and doesn't have enough coverage and and, and is going to go after the government and say, well, there was no one there to walk me through this. There was no one there that told me I should have $3 million liability, therefore you're at fault. But since they've made the enhanced care model and they've brought in no fault, it seems unlikely, doesn't it, that that would be something that would happen? Yeah. So, you know, there you 
hypothetically, and it's a, and it's a good question you asked, Joe, because hypothetically you could go to court now and say, well, my broker didn't give me the right information anyways. If you have no broker, sure, that exposes potentially the government to liability there. But uh, the ability to sue has changed quite drastically with ICBC. And there are still ways to have the brokers review the policy. And if they believe that there's an issue here, uh, they can flag it. It doesn't it, it likely will not take the same amount of manpower to do the reviews as it does processing the form by allowing individuals to take on that burden themselves to go in and renew it themselves and to fill out the form online. They're taking off some of the work, some of that computer work, the processing work from the brokers. And that's where the savings should be. Brokers still need to be there to provide guidance so people understand liability, so people understand plans. If you add a child to your plan, if you add an additional driver, you know, you have a loved one moving into your house that wants to use your car. Brokers are there to answer all those questions. They are integral here. But by the customer taking on some of the responsibility themselves to do a renewal, there should be some savings reflected in what you pay based on the work you are putting in online by doing the renewal, I think is how people see it. That's why you save money doing things online in other places. Like if you book a trip online, you're saving the money instead of going to a travel agent because you are putting in some of the legwork doing that. I think people would ex expect that car insurance would be similar. And wanted to touch on as well, getting rid of the decal. A lot of people yeah. will be happy about that. <laughs> it is a very, can be very traumatic if you screw up the decal when you're trying to put it on the license plate. <laughs> uh, what's going to be happening then with the, the decal elimination and policing powers or giving a yeah. million dollars to enhance the automated license plate recognition program? Yeah, so basically uh, technology, again, police will be able to use technology to scan your plate and based on that scan, we'll be able to automatically see uh, whether your insurance has been renewed or not. So instead of that visual check of seeing the sticker that says, oh, yeah, Nov, you know, 21 or Nov 14th, 2022, you know, they're good until then. Uh, now they can scan it and the, the information pops up on their reader or their smartphone or their computer showing them whether that person has valid insurance or not. So do we imagine then police are going to be driving around just randomly scanning no. license plates? No, and that's not the expectation here. Uh, it would be used in different situations uh, where there could be a, a stop already or a, an incident. But I, uh, I don't think the expectation is that uh, police will be scanning every parked vehicle along a busy stretch to try to give people tickets. The police just don't have time for that, nor is that uh, how they currently do things. They don't drive by looking at tags. So uh, we don't expect them to do that uh, when the technology changes as well. All right. When does this all um, start or when will this yeah, be in place? So May 1st, it comes into place, but you can uh, you can renew your insurance before that. So it's 44 days before. So about in the middle of March, people will start being able to do their uh, insurance renewals online. Uh, and then the decal will be gone by May 1st. All right, Richard, thank you so much. Oh, before I let you go, on a much lighter note, how did your Super Bowl snacks turn out? 
They were excellent. It was it was really fun, and the halftime show was fantastic. Uh, it was a really great Super Bowl celebration. Thanks for asking, Jill. <laughs> All right. That is Richard Zussman, global news journalist based at the legislature. Thanks for being with us. A busy day, and a bit later on this half hour, we will have more from the news conference with the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, earlier today, announcing that the Emergencies Act will be invoked in this country. First time that has ever happened, dealing with the various protests and blockades that are still underway, the biggest one still in Ottawa. He is uh, answering questions about that at this point, but we'll have a bit more on that coming up in this half hour. We wanted to take a few minutes, though, to talk about something on a much lighter note. And my next guest is a new Westminster resident who is going to be doing a lot of running, and it is for a good cause. And joining me to talk more about this is Vanessa Wozno. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for highlighting the story. It means so much. Well, it's nice to have a, a bit of an inspirational story and something different that's not really COVID-related or blockade-related. Not that those things aren't important, but we like to talk about other things as well. So this is something that's coming up on Saturday, February 19th. What are you going to be doing? On Saturday, I will be running through every New West neighborhood here in the city. Um, New West might be a small city, but we love our neighborhoods. Depending on who you ask, it could be between 11 or 14. Um, and it's kind of the first time I did it, the, the inspiration was um, the New York Marathon because you run through all five boroughs. And I thought it would be fun to do that in the city because I love running in our city. And um, I'm going to be raising money for New West Family Place, a really important organization here in the city. And I thought what better time to do that than on Family Day Long Weekend. So raising money for families on Family Day Long Weekend by running through the city that I love. All right. Well, you mentioned, too, that you've done this route before. Or you've done this run. So when did you do it before? I first did it four years ago. Um, I did it on my birthday because I thought it would be a fun way to celebrate. And I was big into kind of the training season of that year. And so I was looking to up my mileage. And U.S. is pretty brutal. If you've ever run here, there are so many hills. So I thought I would try to space out the hills with um, doing a unique route that I had never done before. <laughs> Interesting. A lot of people will celebrate their birthday, you know, by having cake or something like that. <laughs> but, but you like to run a half marathon. Yes, but I promise I ate a lot of cake after I ran it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so you and so you first came up with that route or ran that route on your birthday. How did you come up with the idea or decide to do this to raise funds as well? Well, as what you were saying, there's a lot of stuff in the news cycle that's very heavy um, on New Year's Eve. Uh, last year, I was feeling pretty down just with all of the things that I was reading about and seeing about. And so I thought, you know, I really want to kick the year off on a really good note. And, um, you know, running makes me feel really good. It's something that brings a lot of satisfaction um, and happiness to myself. And I have a really good friend, Dana Ashoi. She's the executive director of Family Place. Um, Family Place was instrumental in my first year as motherhood. I have an 18-month-old daughter. They were, and she was the person in the place that I went to when I was having anxieties and I needed reassurance or if I needed help. Um, and so I thought, oh my goodness, let's pair these things together. I'll do my run, which I love. I'll raise money for an organization that I love and hopefully um, people can either donate or they can learn more about how the organization can help them too. And I understand too. Now, I, I from uh, there was an article in the the New Westminster Record that talked about mm-hmm. uh, that you do like to take your daughter out to do runs with the stroller. Yeah. Are you going to be running with the stroller uh, during the, doing this half marathon through all the neighborhoods? 
Um, I don't think she would um, be okay with the full half marathon. We haven't quite built up uh, to that length of run yet, but definitely for the last bit, the last run um, is really fun. It comes down to uh, the Queen's Park neighborhood and we end at City Hall. So I think it'd be really fun to have her. My husband will probably meet us um, as we come into that neighborhood and I can, I can take her, do our Rocky kind of montage up the steps with her at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Um, you mentioned that it's something too, that you really enjoy. Have you always been a runner or enjoyed, always enjoyed running? I have. It's something that I've loved ever since I was a young girl. I was always that kid who was organizing races with her friends or um, I think much to the chagrin of my parents. I always wanted to race whenever we were at the beach or the park. And yeah, I'm lucky that it's been something that I've remained injury free and have been able to continue enjoying it through, um, you know, my teenage years up until now. I'm in my mid 30s. And I think my peak, I did an ultra marathon a few years ago. I did a 55k run from Squamish to Whistler and um, that was pretty amazing but I I think I'm going to be uh, not going past the 21 kilometer mark (laughs) (laughs) you did an ultra marathon and still remained injury free that's a pretty uh, pretty big feat Yes, but I, I would say that I probably looked like a wooden marionette for a few weeks after that run. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this this then, if that's your, your background in running, a half marathon will be like a, a little jog around the park for you. <laughs> well, I maybe a jog up some pretty big hills, but um, it should be it should be a good a good run this weekend. I think. <laughs> I mentioned that you're fundraising, as you said, for New Westminster Family Place. So, what are your fundraising goals? Well, my initial goal was $1,000, um, which I'm very happy to say that I've hit it. I, I have The New West community, uh, community is just so amazing. And when I posted about it on, on New Year's, there was a local resident um, who was like, let's get her to $1,000 by New Year's Eve. And we almost made it. At, we were got to $900. Um, and now we're at $1,200. So I would love to make it to $2,000 by the end of this week. That would be kind of my stretch goal. Um, but really anything is just icing on top of the cake that I will eat after the half marathon on Sunday or Saturday. (laughs) Very nice. Um, So do you want people to come out as well? And and if people are in the neighborhood to come and cheer you on? That would be amazing. Yeah, I've posted the route that I'll be running on my Twitter. Um, I'm just Vanessa Wozno on Twitter. And so um, anyone is welcome to come check out the route. And um, people are welcome to run a little bit too. maybe a little bit of a Forrest Gump montage. They're (laughs) happy to have anyone um, involved too. Um, And yeah, I'll be hitting all the neighborhoods. So no matter where they are in the city, they're, they're more than welcome to come out. And I'm guessing that this is going to go ahead rain or shine? I will be rain or shine and I keep looking at the weather and it seems to be um, leaning heavily towards the rain, but that's okay. I run in some pretty, pretty torrential downpours in in my time. So, you know, we'll just, we'll make it work. I I think if you run in Metro Vancouver, any amount of time, you have to be pretty okay with spending some of that time in rainy conditions. You are absolutely correct. Yes. (laughs) All right. So what time again for people, if they want to come out and cheer you on or maybe run a bit with you, uh, what time is this going to be happening and where can people learn more about it? For sure. So I'll be kicking off the run at 9 a.m. I'm starting in the Brow of the Hill neighborhood in New West. Um, please come and check out my Twitter. I'm Vanessa Wozno on Twitter. The newest uh, record wrote a wonderful article um, as well, uh, highlighting a little bit more about the run and family place. And there's also a link in the article where people can make a donation and um, 
just say thank you in advance for anyone who'd want to come out and support or make a donation. All right. So it sounds like it's going to be a great Saturday, even if it's a bit of a rainy one. What a great thing to be doing for a great organization. Vanessa, thanks so much for joining us today to talk more about this. Thank you so much for having me.